Welcome to the Disruptors Podcast. I'm Alexandria. And I'm Jasleen. We're here to disrupt the tech industry by connecting diverse job seekers with inclusive organizations where talent from communities that are underrepresented can thrive. Whether you're a job seeker who belongs to an underrepresented group, a tech employer interested in learning how to attract diverse talent, or a diversity, equity, and inclusion champion looking for resources, we have got you covered. Here's to disrupting. All right, and we're live. Welcome, everyone, to The Disruptors. As you're joining, please let us know in the comments where you are joining us from. And let us know, is this your first time joining us for one of these episodes? Or have you listened to us before? We really want to get a lot of engagement today, a lot of questions, because we have a very important topic here for, you know, February 1st. It is Black History Month. And so put down those ally cookies, just wait, because we have Tony Neighbors with us from Racial Equity Insights. And so he's going to talk to us about what authentic allyship looks like. And so if you're planning on doing anything for Black History Month, or even if you're not, this is an important conversation to think about, are you on an authentic ally? And speaking of where we all are in the world, Tony is actually joining us from Africa, from Tanzania and East Africa. And so you might hear a little bit of a delay or you might hear us maybe accidentally interrupting one another. I just want to put that out there, but we're going to work through it if we have any sort of technical difficulties. Um, yeah. And so our theme for the month is amplify and uplift Black voices. And so Alexandria and I have had a conversation about how we want to really decenter ourselves from because we're, we're we're often very chatty because we're you know working in the DEI space as well, but we really wanted for the for the whole month of February to really play an active listening role and really decentering ourselves from this work because it doesn't matter even if you're a DEI specialist watching this, it's important for us all, even if we're people of color or belong to any sort of marginalized group, to to decenter, to to model this sort of behavior as well as understand our own gaps in this space. And so with that, I will pass it off. Well, I haven't introduced myself. Sorry, if you're new here, I'm Jasleen. I'm a career coach to women in the tech industry and co-founder of The Disruptors. And on that note, I'll pass it off to my co-founder, the OG founder, Alexandria. Thank you, Jasleen. My name is Alexandria. I am an executive leadership coach. I focus mostly on women and LGBTQIA leaders in the tech space, as well as the co-founder, like Jasleen said, for the Disruptors, a job board meant to help people seeking jobs find companies that they can thrive in, which means companies prioritizing diversity, equity, and inclusion first. So that's what we talk about here on these lives and the future of work and how it's right now and what we need to do to be ready for that. But we are inviting Tony to share all of his knowledge with us and we are so grateful so tony if you want to introduce yourself love to hear from you absolutely thank you very much i appreciate i appreciate both of you for having me here today my name is tony neighbors i'm the founder and owner of racial equity insights i work with really any sort of organization business nonprofit, governments etc cetera, etc cetera, who are 
committed to real transformation and are wanting to embed racial equity into the organizational DNA. Uh, so this is a very fitting conversation because my work is all about going beyond just check boxes, beyond positive PR, beyond going through the motions so we can actually make authentic, sustainable transformation. Yeah. I, I love that so much and following you on TikTok, obviously, and some of the major points that you make that just resonates super, super well with me is one of the ones you said is something I say all the time. So, you know, super affirming while also trying to decentralize self is the intention doesn't equate impact, right? And so just because we have good intentions, that's not enough. And we have to acknowledge the impact and be there in the moment when somebody does take the vulnerable risk of giving us feedback of, hey, maybe this wasn't your intention, but here was your impact. And so on that, can you tell us a little bit about your journey into diversity, equity, and inclusion work? Yeah, I would love to. So I would say that my journey began in college. So I went to the University of Washington in Seattle and uh, just taking general education requirement classes. And I stumbled on this program called American Ethnic Studies. Um, and it was basically like a like a CRT undergrad program, uh, which is extremely rare now, let alone rare, you know, back when I was a college student all those years ago. Um, and I just completely was mind blown by all of this information that I had never heard of before about race as a construct, uh, the history of all these different groups in the U.S. and how vital and essential the, the contributions are of all these groups in the U.S. Uh, this information that connects my story and my journey and my community to the history of this nation. Um, and both, uh, you know, obviously there's a lot of history, but then there's a lot of really amazing, powerful things in those stories too, that I had never heard in any of my K through 12. Um, I was in an international college prep high school program, never heard about any of that sort of stuff. Um, and it was so transformational for me that I decided to major in that program, American Ethnic Studies. Uh, and I just knew that whatever I was going to do with my life, I wanted it to involve social and racial justice and educating and advancing this type of work. Um, I had a very, I'd say, sort of non-traditional career trajectory. Um, I did a whole bunch of different stuff. Uh, but whether it, whether it was directly as a part of my role, because I did have several titles that had to do with DEI work, um, or maybe I was doing something that was sort of regular nine to five, but still really engaging with community, engaging with social media, engaging with just people in my circle. Uh, it's just something I've been passionate about for about the last 20, 20 years or so. Or so. Um, so then eventually I got to a point where I realized, hey, I've been doing this for a long time. Um, I really need to take my own expertise, experience, and passion more seriously. Um, and that is when I launched my business and my consultancy about five years ago. That's beautiful. Thank you for sharing that. And so, Tony, tell us, what does it really mean to be an ally to the Black community? Because I feel like I've always identified as an ally. And the more I do this work, I start to realize what true, and we're going to get into what authentic allyship isn't or what performative allyship is, but what is really the definition or kind of the guidelines that you follow of authentic allyship, specifically to the Black community? Yeah, so I'll, I'll sort of actually 
I'll kind of bounce a little bit off of some of the reflections that Alexandria was already talking about from some of the, some of the things that I talk about online. Um, but I'm really, I'm really about what are the impacts and outcomes of the work that is being done. Um, is whatever work or task or conversation or advocacy work or whatever it is, is it leading to equity or increases of equity of Black, Indigenous, and other people of color? Um, and or is it dismantling systems of white supremacy in society? Um, and I, for me, those are kind of my general guidelines of things that are useful and helpful ally work. Um, I think there are some things that don't necessarily do those directly that can at least be helpful. Like, you know, sometimes people talk about needing to have these conversations. Uh, like I, I've heard, you know, white people, for example, that'll say, ah, we really need to talk about this stuff together, which I think is important and valuable and that sort of thing. Um, but we need to also be viewing that, you know, are these conversations leading okay. to advancing equity for Black, Indigenous, and people of color, mm. um, slash, are they dismantling white supremacy? Um, because sometimes there can be kind of the cycle of conversations and, you know, education, but it doesn't translate to anything that benefits the community or dismantles these systems. So mm -hmm. that is really the, the guidance that I try to give yeah. broadly when it comes to being a, an effective and an impactful ally, ally to you know, the black, black yeah. community as well as any other marginalized communities as well. Yeah, I, I used to have a leader, um, I won't name the company, that belonged to a white man's club. And my initial reaction was <gasps> like a pearl clutching moment. And, uh, and, and so he told me that, you know, it was about uh, like they would meet to understand their gaps. And so, which I think is good. And I think there's also, you know, you know, value in bringing in those outside perspectives. And so this is something that I've always sort of struggled with in terms of being an authentic ally. I want to hear from Black voices. I want to include Black voices. But then I get a little bit nervous about, am I burdening Black folks with more unpaid work, right? And so for those of us who don't have the means to, you know, either compensate someone or um, like, what are the options? Like, what are the options for people to really start to become an authentic ally without being in a silo? Yeah, so it's a great question. Um, and I guess to at least start to to start to answer that question, um, it's interesting. Just even the word ally, I feel like these days there's almost a, a sort of weight to that word uh, because I find that it is misused so often um, mm -hmm. that a lot of people who have been doing this work for a long time um, and a lot of Black folks um, are kind of getting sort of a, a sour taste with the word just because of how it has been misused. Um, and that's like a whole other conversation. There's so many words that I feel like have been really useful and then they're misused and misused and the definition changes and then we have to constantly come up with new words, which you know, that's, a different, that's a different conversation for a different day. Um, but I think that um, there is uh, needed, I wanted to quote this before, 
like with another conversation I had, and I couldn't remember the quote, and I didn't look at, I'm going to paraphrase this. Um, anybody tuning in, please comment the full quote, the correct person. I'm blanking on who it is. But it's uh, some very, very well-known civil rights historical figure um, who said something along the lines of, you know, sort of this true idea of allyship is when people, like when you realize that uh, your liberation is wrapped up in my liberation. Um, it's like it's super big quote that I'm blanking on the exact words for it. Um, but a lot of times uh, there are a couple of ideas that I think people are not even necessarily aware that they have when it comes to wanting to be an ally. Um, and one of those is sometimes it can be a very sort of a kind of patronizing sort of, you know, oh, those poor black and brown people, we have to help them and save them and give to those poor folks, uh, which is very dehumanizing and uh, very infantilizing as well. Um, and sort of this idea that people with societal privilege um, basically have all this stuff to give to those, those poor black and brown people, uh, where I've actually there's there's there there are uh, sociological theories that talk of this, um, and there's a feminist theory that I have spoken about recently called standpoint theory that actually suggests that marginalized people have a much more accurate perspective on society uh, because they have to in order to survive in an oppressive society. Um, so the same way that oftentimes black and brown people have a much more clear perspective about racism and even whiteness because of the need to do that for survival. In the same way that a lot of times women will have a much more clear perspective about sexism and misogyny and how men roll, how men roll in society uh, because it's required for survival in a, in a patriarchal misogynist society. Um, and you can kind of really go down the line. Um, so it's sort of a, a sort of, uh, I would say incorrect or maybe less helpful perspective from some allies is this idea that they need to sort of give to these poor people there or these, these sad, tragic people over here, as opposed to this partnership for a shared sense of humanity. Um, and then another one that I'm, I'm, I'm hoping we'll be able to get into at some point during this conversation, um, but a lot of people have a motivation of, you know, I want people to see me as a good person. Um, I want people to know that I am quote unquote, not racist. Um, where Dr. Abram X. Kendi would argue that not racist doesn't exist. <laughs> You're either actively anti-racist and looking to dismantle this stuff, um, or you are either actively racist or complicit in racism if you just sort of wring your hands and think that you don't need to do anything or say anything or that they're gonna be in control. For sure. Yeah. So we actually have the quote. Somebody was delightful enough to Google it for us. So thank you, Cassie. Excellent. Uh, so, Excellent. Yeah. It's uh, if right, you have come here to help me, uh, you are wasting your time. But if you have come here because your liberation is bound up with mine, then let us work together. Uh, is it Lilia Watson? Did I say that right? I'm, I maybe did not say that correctly. I think it's Lilla Watson. Lilla Watson. Thank mm -hmm. you. That. Yeah. Also, apologies for reading something as a human with dyslexia. Reading something verbatim <laughs> while live is no a, apologies. A stressful situation. I love. You nailed. I it. love. I love Tony that you brought up uh, standpoint theory because your video on TikTok. I actually shared that in my anti-racism group, and I found it 
sparked a really thoughtful, helpful conversation. And I actually, uh, you know, I'm going to mention at the end of this where you can get a resource we're creating for Black History Month. And so I've made a note for myself to put your video in there on standpoint theory, because I feel like for me, even like, like I've done this work for a while and it, it, it sparked this, this kind of um, thoughtful exercise that I did about like, you know, kind of thinking like that I know what another community might need. And, and so I think even when I'm listening to those voices, those, those, that community is not a monolith. And so you can't say, well, I listened to one black person and they told me this was, this is what they needed, or this is what the barriers were. And, you know, you speak to other people in the same community. I can speak for, I don't want to, I don't want to center myself, but, um, you know, there, there's arguments within a community of the right way of approaching something because it's so nuanced, it's so systemic, and it impacts people in different ways. And so it's not about necessarily saying, okay, this is the right way, this is the wrong way, but like collecting as much data as you can. And, and also making sure that you have leaders that that are tapped into those communities who look like those communities who you know are part of that community so um it it really got me thinking in a thoughtful way about that yeah for sure i appreciate you pointing that out too and actually let's go back to the thing that you said that you wanted to dismantle a little bit or unpack a little bit and i think it goes along with some of the other questions that we had Specifically, what does performative allyship look like? And you talk about that in some of your other videos, too, of like, what's not a good reason why? So let's dig into like, what isn't a good reason why? And what does performative allyship look like? Because people may not even realize that they are being complicit in the performative nature. And maybe highlight some of that a little bit so people can attach to it a little bit more clearly. Yeah. And so I think two words that are very, that, yeah, I think tend to be some of the strongest indicators if something is performative ally, allyship. Um, and that is uh, center and spotlight. Where is the center? Where is the spotlight? Um, and a lot of times there is a lot of effort put into some of these actions that might on the surface seem like good actions that are, you know, anti-racism or anti-racial, whatever the case is, um, but they maybe are performed in such a way, or some of you use the word perform, but they're performed in such a way where it's sort of a, hey, look at me, I know the right stuff, or I have, oh, let me jump on this person that said this wrong thing so you can see that I've got it, I understand it, um, you know, I'm woke, you know, all those sorts of kind of things, uh, which is very much about, you know, look at me. Uh, and then also spotlight, same thing too, where um, what are people's actions and behaviors? How are they stepping in even when nobody sees it? Or if it's not on social media, or if it's not on a stage, or uh, maybe it's something that you're doing that truly is maybe making a helpful difference, but you don't get backpacks. You know, you don't get back that you don't get the co the cookies, right? You don't get the ally cookies. You don't get the shout outs from the black and brown people. Um, and as a matter of fact, you might even, you know, you might even have you know someone that says, oh, whatever, you know, maybe you might even get a negative reaction from something that maybe is actually beneficial or helpful. Uh, like, where are you at then? Where are you at in those spaces? Um, and if the only time that someone is interested in participating in this work is when they are getting, you know, kudos and shout outs and recognition, um, that's performative 
that's performative. Um, and that can be on an individual level and certainly organizations. Um, I see organizations that will, you know, they might, you know, this month, especially like this is like the month where everyone and their mom is getting speakers and, oh, we've got to get somebody to talk about Black History Month or we've got to, you know, talk about Black stuff for this particular month. Um, oh, that's over with March 1st, moving on to something else, you know. <laughs> um, Women's and, Month. Uh, so that's right? something that definitely. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. It's Women's Month and Pride will be coming up around the corner and, you know, yeah. that, it's kind of going through that sort of thing. Um, and so uh, on an organizational level, um, I would say there can be a lot of indicators that an organization is being performative with their allyship or advocacy work. But I'd say one, and this is, this is not universal, there's exceptions, there's you know, nonprofits, et cetera, that there's, there could be complexities to this. But oftentimes one of, I'd say the primary indicators is when there is no budget allocation mm -hmm. or when there is a very, unrealistically tiny budget allocation to this work um you know where big corporate you know i see that sometimes with corporations that are making bank like they you know whatever their stuff is they're you know big corporations they're technical whatever things are that are generating a lot of money um you know ceos making you know millions of dollars but somehow they do not have a dei budget um, and assume like it's okay that oh sure you guys can form a committee and you know we'll put you on the website and we'll put Black Lives Matter on you know the side of the building, uh, but there's no budget allocated to actually making any sort of uh, staff uh, leadership community policy education like there's no investment in transformation or transformation transforming uh the actual identity of the organization as well as very critically examining the power structures and who the people are at the decision making table mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so tony i think you started to answer this question when you were talking about the center and the spotlight but I wanted to bring this up because in the media, we're just like, there's so much violence in the black, like toward the black community that is constantly on the news cycle. And so, and this is one that I've struggled with. And I think, I feel like your spotlight um, center model is helping me already frame that. But what, how should allies, if, if you identify as an ally to the black community, how should you respond to injustice in the media? So for example, I've heard, you know, some folks say, you know, we need more support. I haven't heard so-and-so say anything about this event or, you know, like they're, they're kind of calling people out who haven't said anything, who've been silent. And on the flip side, I've heard folks from the black community say, stop reposting this st stuff, stop sharing it because it's re-traumatizing to some of us black folks. I come on LinkedIn to just, you know, catch up on, on work stuff and I don't need to be subject to this all the time. And so that can be a tricky, again, like kind of going to standpoint theory. How do we, how do we respond? How do we respond as allies to these injustices? Yeah. So I heard kind of a couple of questions in there. So I heard the question about uh, basically kind of engaging with the media when these sort of stories are coming up. Mm -hmm. um, and then just kind of this bigger question about how to, in general, uh, show up for justice and that kind of thing. Um, I have, a, I would say, uh, 
a very intentionally distant relationship with news. Um, and I'm going to, I don't want to hop on soapbox mode, but I think there is in some of it, some of it's soapbox mode and some of it is hop like, on. Tony, this is your soapbox. So hop on. Okay. <laughs> I'll, I'll do that. You know, kind of like Tony conspiracy theory mode too. So take that with the grains of the grains of salt that it should be taken with. Um, but, uh, no, no, this is not really that conspiracy. This is, this is just facts and how things work. Um, news, news media requires views to make money. Um, and there's sort of this, uh, there's this mentality that a lot of people have of just assuming that, hey, the news's job is to just report what's happening and tell us the things that are important. Um, but that is not actually what their function really is because there are a lot of people in news media and in higher up positions uh, that just rake in the dollars and, you know, ad revenue and other sources of, of funding and income and that kind of thing. And so if something is not sensational, it's very less likely to sort of hit the news cycle with that sort of force. Um, and it's interesting because these stories in particular about racialized violence against Black people, uh, they are constants. Like, not, not I'll say stories, I'll say the actual incidences. This, this stuff is happening on a daily basis everywhere, um, you know, all over the place. These types of stories, these types of incidents are happening. Um, but it's interesting how maybe a few times in a year, there'll be one story that kind of all, all the news networks decide that they're going to just broadcast the mess out of. And there's every, it's going to become this big thing. Um, it's going to be all over social media. It's going to be all over the news. Uh, and I sort of see it as sort of like the news sort of playing with us like puppeteers um, and sort of strategically generating outrage out of us. Because um, we haven't heard anything for a while. It's like, oh, this thing is happening now. And now we need to sort of fly into action and respond to it. Um, and my thing is, where are, you know, sort of allies at when this stuff is not hitting the news cycle? Uh, mm -hmm. Where are allies at when this stuff is not going by? Um, mm -hmm. Because again, this stuff is constant. Um, and this stuff yeah. has been constant way before the news ever decided that these subjects were worthy of conversation or worthy of coverage or anything like that. Um, and so it's, it's, it's sort of, it's wearisome for me to sort of see that cycle of one story hits the news and blows up all over the place. Everybody sort of uh, is up in arms and is really upset and angry about it. Um, and then within a few weeks to a month or two, it's almost like everybody forgot it even happened. Yeah. Um, so and then people just move on with their life. So it's going in waves and no actual systemic changes happening. And so yeah, I, would I say wanted no, to, yeah. Yeah. But I wanted to kind of pay attention because I even noticed myself in this conversation and how I framed it. And I talked about it. And you also mentioned it's like violence against the black community. And so there is a creator on TikTok. You probably know who she is. I think her name is Tammy in the fashion world. Okay. I don't know. I'm going to, I'll post in the, I'll post in the comments um, who that is, but she was talking about this week about framing it, not as black, like violence against the black community, but talking about it as white violence. Mm -hmm. And so yeah. I noticed myself even in how I framed this question and saying, you know, 
I, I said black violence and black violence and on its own can have bias and, and, and sort of, you, you know, like it could be a loaded thing to think about, but when we, cause we talk about the spotlight and I think that's where a lot of us in the DEI space are always like, no, we need to center marginalized communities. Let's bring black people to the center. But I think, you know, what I loved about what she said is like bringing you know, the most marginalized to the center when it comes to the resources and the budgets and that sort of thing. But the work needs to be centered around whiteness. And and mm -hmm. I say that even as a, as a brown woman, because I have internalized whiteness. Mm -hmm. And so anyways, that's just kind of something I'm calling myself in on, on how I asked you that question. So I don't know what your thoughts maybe are on, on the language that we use. Well, and I would like to no, say something great. about the importance of shifting that spotlight into so you can dismantle white supremacy, because the insidious nature of white supremacy and why it is still what it is, is because it has distanced itself from itself. Right. Mm -hmm. Like it's, oh, well, we're going to look over here and it's going to be this community's problem and that community's problem versus the white supremacy and like colonization of the systems that people are now so removed from that they don't even understand how they came into being in the first place. So saying, yeah, white violence, like this is white aggression, this is white supremacy does refocus it on the actual core of the issue so that we can move forward. And I, I definitely want to hear your thoughts on that shifting of language and the power of it. Yeah. Um, that was very well stated. Um, I think I would just be sort of piggybacking off that a little bit because um, I, I fully agree with that. Um, I think when we talk about centering, uh, I'll basically just sort of repeat back what I heard both of you said because I, I agree with it. Um, when it comes to who is who 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 are the voices that we're listening to who is getting the microphone who are the people that we are choosing to put our educational kind of gaze towards who are we willing to fund um, who are we supporting like those things very much need to center on black indigenous people of color when it comes to anti-racism work but absolutely um, we cannot do anti-racism if we don't talk about whiteness, um, if we don't talk about white supremacy and white supremacy culture. Um, and if we're not really clear on language, um, there's so many, gosh, there's so many rabbit holes we could jump down. I'm gonna toss a, 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 a nugget in one direction, but I don't think we're gonna jump, jump, jump down that rabbit hole. But um, that's why I don't like phrases like white fragility, for example. Mm. Um, because something that is fragile, like you need to handle it carefully. You need to be delicate with it. It is, you know, this person who is emotionally, you know, unable to handle things like that's what comes to mind for me when I hear the word fragile. Um, and I think it feels good for some people because it also sounds a little bit, uh, demeaning, like, oh, you're just fragile. Um, but it does not characterize what is happening. Um, and I really prefer the language of Carol Anderson, um, who, write the, who wrote the book White Rage, uh, which is really what it is. And so the way that I speak, the way that I'm speaking with the two of you right now, I mean, this is generally the tone and the demeanor that I talk about this stuff in general. I mean, of course, your voice is going to be a little bit when you're talking to a camera by yourself. But this is generally kind of my temperament of how I communicate this stuff. Um, mm -hmm. But even me, I get the most horrifyingly evil comments directed at me. Uh, just really, 
blatantly unabashed gross racism. Um, even when I'm teaching, even when I'm speaking calmly, even when I'm you know smiling, you know all these sorts of things. Um, and I recently shared a post about mm. tone policing too, um, because it should matter the tone when marginalized people are talking about injustice. Um, if you're if you're an ally, you know, if you're someone that professes to be an ally or an anti-racist, uh, your focus needs to be on what is the message, even if the presentation makes you uncomfortable and hurts your feelings. Um, but yes, definitely, you know, we need to be able to call yeah. those things out and name them. And there was maybe you might have heard about this, or someone can chat this too if I need a clarification. But I want to say that there was like some FBI important person who I'm thinking who it is, but there was some document that they released where they they said that something like a white nationalist being like the number one domestic terrorist in the United States, um, something like that came from the FBI fairly recently. Um, and like nobody's really talking about that. Um, and I think part of the reason why nobody's talking about that is because of fear of this backlash of white racist ways in which um, many, many white people just explode just hearing that somebody's having a conversation about stuff, let alone when we're starting to get into the nitty gritty and start to actually roll back and unpack things. Um, I have blocked hundreds of horrible, awful commenters in just the last probably a couple of weeks, <laughs> like that, that level of volume of vitriol uh, for having these types of conversations and trying to teach people about it. And so uh, and so I've been to have my whole practice to take care of myself uh, because I care about this work too much. This work is too important to yeah. get knocked off of the stoop just because of how awful uh, and violent people will respond to it. Yes. Boundaries. Boundaries are so important. And I'm glad you shared that with us because even, and again, I feel like I don't want to center myself, but even like as I was saying that when I was calling myself out and saying the words white violence, there was a fear that came up in me. Like, oh my goodness, how dare I That's real. That's real. call white people out for violence? But I I also like, I, I also look at myself within that equation as, you know, I'm not black and, and I am, I do have privilege and a certain proximity to whiteness. And so when I double down on that proximity to whiteness, I am uh, either, I don't know if you want to say active or inactive, like complacent participant in white violence. And so I don't know how, how LinkedIn even works. So I was thinking, oh my gosh, if I say these words, are we going to get shut down right away? Like that, that thought came up because I've seen that happen mm -hmm. on TikTok, but I think it's a real I, I agree because if we talk about it like white fragility, like what we're doing is we're coddling white folks, exactly. right? And so, exactly. and I think for the white people who are listening, like we, it is not about like projecting guilt or shame or all these things that we hear people say that this is what you're doing to us. It's not. It's about shifting your perspective and having a new awareness on this so that you can actually do the work, right? Because it is hard work. I, I, and I feel like for me, like I've shared with you, Tony, when we were, when we met before this, I was like, I have been a performative ally in the recent past. I was like, well, it's February one. I better post a carousel on Instagram. Let's put Beyonce, Maya Angelou, Tony Morrison, all my, all my go-to inspirational black women, women in there. And then I kind of sat with that and I was like, wait a minute. And next year, like, and I do this on, um, you know, in June for, 
uh, in Canada, we have National Indigenous Peoples Month. I've, I've called myself in to say I'm not going out and, 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 and posting anything until I've actually done some work. And so I just wanted to, 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 for everyone who's watching this, it's not about shame or guilt. It's about shifting to action. And so I am going to share a resource that is already in draft. We're just, I'm going to add some of these nuggets that, um, that Tony has mentioned here into that document because I feel like, and, and I'm stealing with pride from, I, I shouldn't say that, from the Indigenous community. That sounds Are really we? bad. <laughs> <laughs> Woo! Okay, let's, let's, take that, let's take that a step back. Okay, not stealing with pride. I am crediting the, the folks that created that because it was a non-Indigenous and Indigenous person in Canada. So I'm crediting that in the document. But there was uh, 150 acts of reconciliation. I go back to it every year because there's always actions in there that I can take. And so when I'm kind of like, where are my gaps still? That's sort of my, my, my map for doing the work. And so I looked for one of these um, resources from the Black community. Again, I didn't want to burden anyone in the Black community with doing more work. And I found that a lot of them were very school-based, elementary school children, not necessarily like the tough questions or the decentering work. And so, so I've started putting that together. If someone out there has heard of a resource that already exists that someone in the Black community created, we're going to put that in there instead. But for now, just so that we have something for the disruptors community, I've, I've created that. Um, and so I just want to go to the comments because we had some comments here. So Craig said, same with gun violence in general. Yeah, there's a lot of stigma around that because um, we know that. Okay, well, let's not go there. Uh, let's not go down that road. Okay. Other <laughs> I'm, I'm going to back that up. Let's, let's, okay, let's not go down that road. And Hannah says the focus on the presentation rather than the substance is used as a tool to silence those who express differently due to culture, neurodivergence, or other reasons. reasons. And I love that because it speaks to Tony, what you're saying, how some people gravitate toward you because you are palatable to white folks in a sense. And so, because uh, you have to be really careful about that narrow band of accepted behaviors as a black man, right? Like, as you said. And so I, I feel like I'm speaking to you. Is it for you? Is that kind of summarize? Well, let me, yeah, let me speak to that. Let me speak to that. Um, yeah. So for me, for me, um, I, I present the way that I present really not because of white folks. Um, for me, I, this work brings me great joy. Mm -hmm. And so I'm really intentional in expressing that forth and how I do my thing. And my mental health is also incredibly important to me. And I never want to get it. There's a there's a, a tightrope walk when you are teaching about systems of oppression that are so horrific, um, where there could be a tightrope where we just spiral off into despair and hopelessness uh, and rage. Uh, mm -hmm. And I know for me, with just how I'm built, my physical health does not do well when I allow myself to go into that space. That's not the case for everybody. And there are some people who sit in that space of rage and express from that and do so very effectively and powerfully. Uh, but for me, just who I am and my personality and just how, yeah. I, uh, how I need to show up so I can do this sustainably, that's why I show up how, how, how I do that. Um, and that's why I typically don't do back and forths with awful people uh, because then it ends up messing me up. Like I have a, a, a like, 
I get I get upset. I might get a headache just from thinking about this. And I can't believe this person did that. Um, like, I'm just not really built for that type of back and forth with people who really have no real significance to my life. Um, so I, I, that's for me. Uh, that's definitely yeah. not for white people. Um, like, I will say what I need to say. And there might be times where I'm even be like, well, this we'll see how people receive this, but I think it's important. And I'm going to say, uh, there might be some posts where I can predict that it might get an interesting response uh, just because it's challenging. Um, and if I'm not doing so hot, then maybe I'll say, oh, maybe I'll just post that next week when I feel like I have a little bit more capacity for the potential pushback. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm still going to post it. <laughs> I'm still going to post it. We're still going yeah. to get that information out there because, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's too, it's, so important to not be able to have those conversations. Yeah. Uh, and and I, I once upon a time, I think once upon a time, I really went out of my way to, you know, speak properly and smile a lot and, you know, don't want to intimidate or scare white people. Uh, but I, at this point in time, so I'm, I'm 39 now, um, there's been too many years and too many instances in my own life and in those of people in my community and even celebrities, even black celebrities, uh, where does it matter? It doesn't matter how nice you are. It doesn't matter how gentle you are. It doesn't matter how accommodating you are. White supremacy is still going to see blackness in a very particular way, regardless of that. Um, you just think mm. of all of the extreme uh, intentionality with the communication and the presentation from the Obamas, for example, uh, and still the absolute just mouth spitting vitriol uh that they received while oh. you know the obama administration was in the white house um, so it doesn't matter and so if it doesn't yeah. matter then i need to find ways to just be myself and be my happiest fullest most authentic self regardless yes yeah i love how you frame that i i was actually thinking of the obamas when you were talking about that because i had the privilege of hearing michelle obama speak live and she mm -hmm was telling us about how she actually got a lot of, I don't want to say she used the word hate, but she got a lot of criticism from the black community in acting too white or, and you see her now, like she's on her book on her second book tour and she's becoming a little bit more like authentically finding her own style, probably because the world is just like pulling her and telling her who she needs to be to be accepted as a first lady who now who she needs to be to be accepted, you know, is speaking in, in black spaces. And so I, 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 I can kind of feel like how that might, that might like deflect from the good work that you do. Right. Because if you're always in your head about, am I too aggressive? Am I too this? Am I too what, whatever, then it's, it's taking away. And so I love that you don't engage with those people. And I think also for people listening to this, like as Tony was saying that about, you know, those terrible, terrible people, you might not identify as one of those overtly racist, stuck in their thinking kind of person. But in that, in that tool that I'm going to share, I'm going to share a video um, of a creator. I think her name is Amale. And um, she shares like, as a distribution, like, uh, like she's a standard deviation to kind of get you to think about where you are on the spectrum. And so I think that's like a call in for everyone who's doing this work, whether 
you know, in, in any capacity to really look at and think about in terms of your anti-racism journey, we're all somewhere on that spectrum. And so what is it that you need to kind of think about? Because we've all internalized these things. We've all internalized these messages. And so how can we just start to, you know, tear down, you know, these, these walls that are, are, are meant to uphold white supremacy? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that is a really good segue into a question that I definitely want to get in on because, you know, there's a lot of people who are afraid to start engaging in this work, right? So the the quote that Jesleen found, and I think is super good, because I, I do hear it a lot, and you hear it a lot out in the world. So no matter what I'm doing, I'm getting it wrong. So I'm just going to lay low. I know I'm not racist, so I'll just leave it to them. And them being those who are willing to engage in the work, right? Or them being people who are a mm-hmm. part of these communities that have been historically marginalized. And so when you come across those people who are like, well, I'm not racist and I seem to be getting it wrong every time I open my mouth, what would you say to them about how they can shift and become actively anti-racist? Well, I will tell you, I will, I promise, I promise I can answer that question. But first I'm gonna say that uh, I typically would not engage with that person. Um, sure. So I, I eventually, I eventually am going to, because you know, I, we've been talking a lot about social media, you know, put a lot of content out there. Um, and also, thanks, Meg. I see, I see you in the comments, Meg. Uh, Meg follows me on Instagram, and we're connected on Instagram. And give me a shout out, Maggie. Um, but I, eventually, I want to make a post about this idea of time wasters when it comes to anti-racism mm-hmm. work. Um, there are some people who are maybe maybe this is not a forever thing. Maybe it's a season, maybe it's something they eventually grow and are able to be in a new space. Uh, but there are some people where in the present moment uh, to expend energy to try to convince them and tell them and win them over is a waste mm-hmm. of my time. Mm-hmm. Um, and especially uh, when you see people where they, prof- you know, they profess a passion or a care for this stuff, but then suddenly they don't wanna do it anymore. The moments they might get a, a critique or a pushback or a call out or a call in or a correction. Um, and then they get so deep in their feelings about that, that they don't even want to do the work anymore. Um, mm-hmm. And that also tells me that that individual uh, does not even remotely take racism seriously enough. Um, it does not realize that this is literally life and death on a daily basis. Um, and new new psychological terms are emerging to describe the experience of black and brown people who are under this constant siege of racist violence, uh, both actually in real life and then just even observing it in the news. Um, mm. You know, I've heard new terms. I'm forgetting what the specific terms are, but new terms to describe the actual PTSD symptoms that people uh, experience just from watching the stuff in the news all the time because we relate so deeply to these people that are these victims in these stories and gets well that could absolutely be me that could have been my cousin that could have been my child um, but that has material psychological harm um, so all these things are happening in real time and there's such an urgency and there's such an importance to this work um, so when i compare just the gravity of this work that needs to be done 
And then there's somebody who sort of has the audacity to say, well, I can't ever get it right. You're always telling me I'm messing up. I guess I'm just not going to do it. Honestly, for me, it's like, okay, well, you go up and you live your life. Um, and I would much rather spend my energy with someone who understands it and gets it and actually is actively looking for tools to be able to be a part of liberation. Um, mm -hmm. Now, I will say that is me specifically as a professional in this in the space, someone who specifically as I dedicate so much life to uh, so much of my life to equipping leaders. Um, and that is specifically me as a black man as well, because uh, it is uh, just incredibly uh, disrespectful to expect mm -hmm. black and brown people to tell you that their life is worthy of given any cares about. Um, and for me, I, I have too much self-esteem to do that, to sort of, oh, this is why you should actually believe yeah. that this stuff is important. Like, I, I can't do that for my own sort of peace of mind and just to be able to look at myself in the mirror. Um, so that's that's like my my, my prelude to that. Mm. Um, I guess part of the, part of that the the answer to your question, Alexandra, is is within there as well. Um, I think mm -hmm. it's that the person really needs to understand what is truly at stake here. Um, mm -hmm. And I try to create metaphors when I describe the stuff uh, some of the because it's not just that you know oh gosh somebody you know they gave me a bad look or you know someone said a mean thing to me at the store like it's mm -hmm. so much more than that. Um, there's so many, you know, see this play out in data in so many different spaces with how people fare throughout society and almost every single social determinant, um, black, indigenous, people of color, uh, actually I should say white people fare the best and nearly every social determinant that can be tracked down by statistics and data. Um, mm -hmm. I mean, in almost every single one of those same uh, statistics, it's typically black and indigenous people at the very bottom of those charts. Um, and then we start to get into some of the history. We start to learn about, you know, at least for the for, for black history, or um, I'll, I'll say, I'm gonna rephrase, we're talking about language. Uh, when we're talking about the white disruption of black history, which is really what it is. Uh, we talk about, you know, the kidnapping and enslavement of Africans for hundreds of years, which then shifts into the black codes, which shifts to Jim Crow segregation which shifts mm -hmm. to redlining, which shifts to mass incarceration and the war on drugs, which shifts to all these different, you know, all these different things. Mm -hmm. um, you know, just the story is so big. And once we start to kind of get our handle on those things or start to have a, an appreciation for how big those things are, then mm -hmm. I hope the desire is, this is tough. This is challenging. I need to do my inner work as an yeah. ally. This is me speaking as an ally. I need to do my inner work um, I need to honor that I have feelings. Like feelings are incredibly important to honor and acknowledge. So how can I do my work separate from mm. marginalized people? So that way I can actually show up ready to put in the work um, and then ready to care for myself in spaces where I might be made uncomfortable or where I might be called out and embarrassed and like, oh, I've activated, but let me go deal with that. Let me speak to my, my friends. Uh, let me get a therapist. Let me, you know, do the things that I know fill my bucket so that I can show up for this work. Right yeah, I love I love that you're talking about inner work. This is like, ah, I love this stuff. But 
I, I wanted to call the attention to our viewers or our listeners on if you sound like that person, if you sound like that person who gets triggered when someone calls you out, um, think about the work that you need to do to heal your own trauma. Mm-hmm. Because both things can be true at the same time. Because I feel like that's that dichotomy, that mental dichotomy that we have that, well, I have gone through so much in my life too. And Mm -hmm. I have been, you know, I went through whatever, like there's real trauma that people have gone through. And so if you sound like that person, this could be your call to hiring a therapist, doing your own healing work, healing your own trauma, because if you're not healed or at least on the path of healing, you're not going to be able to help any other communities. And so, so both of those things can be true. You as an individual could have experienced trauma and a community as a whole can be experiencing trauma and have experienced trauma. And so it's not about like getting into this, like, um, you know, what is the, you know, what, what do people call it? The, the oppression, oppression Olympics, the oppression Olympics. Yes. It's not the, it's not the oppression Olympics. It's, it's about two things can, there can be multiple truths at the same time, but your truth being centered in this work, there's, we cannot have space for that because it's been, you know, centuries and, and, and no change is happening. Mm-hmm. But as an individual, you have resources available to you to start doing your own healing work and understanding that when people are calling you in or maybe calling you out and because they've had enough and they've been subjected to trauma. And so they need to really be clear about their boundaries that your response to that is more about you than it is about them. And so that's your call to action. If that sounds like you. Yeah. I want to highlight the decentering of self in that, right? If you are the person who says, no matter what I do, I'm getting it wrong. There's a lot of emotion in that statement. There's a whole lot of showing that you're activated in that moment. And there's a lot for to be unpacked and a lot to be processed. But pausing and taking a moment and looking inward, doing the inner work that both Tony and Jasleen talked about is vitally important in that. Because if you are getting called out a lot, hmm then that people around you are caring enough to share that with you. And why you don't like the presentation, that's fine. We don't have to like the presentation to receive the message. So I encourage you, if that sounds like you, like, oh, I can't do anything right, so I'm just going to not go to it at all. That's a huge opportunity. And Yeah, and remembering that person was brave enough to share it with you and trusted you enough to share it with you because I can guarantee as someone who calls people in a lot, it, it is emotional labor, right? Tony, mm-hmm. I mean, can you speak to that a little bit? The emotional Just labor of, of time. I do want to hear it, but we have like six minutes left. So I'll respond to that. I can, I can wrap that question really quickly. Um, that's something that I actually, I speak about often in my work, especially if uh, we're talking about racism and if a black indigenous or person of color is telling a white person, hey, you know, when you said, or you did this thing, Ooh, that, you know, that was not good or, you know, whatever. Um, that is such an incredible gift and opportunity uh, because exactly as both of you were just talking about, um, there's often so much violence and there can be so much at stake when black and brown people speak up about things. Um, and so I say really, and that can apply to really any sort of space of oppression versus privilege. Um, but when a member of that marginalized community 
tell someone who is not of that marginalized community, hey, this thing you did was not cool, was not okay. Um, we need to learn to treat that like gold. That person mm -hmm. has given you a golden nuggets and you have the opportunity to receive that, to self-reflect, to change behavior and try to fix that thing that went wrong um, and prevent it in the future. Um, but so often, because a lot of people, again, are having this sort of me, 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 look at me, I'm awesome, I'm great, I'm a good person sort of allyship, um, that that puts them in a position where they are severely uh, closed off to receiving any sort of yeah. feedback. And that's a terrible attribute to have as someone who wants yeah. to be Yeah. Even if you're not an ally, it's a terrible attribute to have. And so I, I, I work with my clients are mostly women and women of color. And so I work with them to help them depersonalize and not internalize the messages because those the messages we get always says more about that other person. But it's you're, you're kind of thinking about it in a way that, okay, now what? is the nugget, like you said, Tony, what is the nugget I'm taking away? Where's the gold in this? And not going down the shame spiral, right? Like that's, mm -hmm. I think that's what a lot of us, and again, going back to our own unhealed trauma, a lot of us go down the shame spiral because we were raised to believe you do a bad thing, you are a bad person, but that's not true. You can do a bad thing and do better next time. There's no good or bad. It's about what is moving us toward dismantling inequity, dismantling white supremacy, and what is keeping us stuck in the same type of thinking that's probably making you unhappy in other ways and you don't even realize it. Mm -hmm. I think it's a Maya Angelou quote, but once you know better, you do better. Yeah. Lovely. No better, you do better. <laughs> <laughs> Not to be performative, but I love No, I do, I do feel better. <laughs> Uh, so to close doesn't out, love my Angela. I know I she's mean, just yes yeah 100%. <laughs> um so we're, I'm going to draw attention to Meg's comment because that leads into you sharing about your work uh who has the budgets and organizations to hire you and how do you get hired I, before you answer that I also want to call out thank you so much for everybody who did participate in the comments uh we can't respond on StreamYard but we will be responding on LinkedIn so if you want to answer Meg's question. And, and can I quickly say something to Tony? So Tony, if you're not following him on TikTok, you got to be following on TikTok or Instagram. And Tony also has a link. We are not full transparency. We are not paying Tony to be here today. Right. And so if you, he has a tip jar, there's the link in his bio on TikTok. So if you want, if you got value out of this conversation, please go there and, uh, and make sure to donate. Go ahead. Thank Tony. you, Jasmine. I appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the first question I, I felt, I'm not quite sure to answer the part about who has the budgets and organizations to hire you. Um, I can speak to the second one much more clearly uh, and immediately. Um, typically speaking, um, people will reach out to me through my website or they'll send me an email. Uh, my website is www.racialequityinsights.com. Uh, and I, I think that my site, I, I, I think I did a pretty decent job of setting that up to really clarify just who I am, how I conceptualize about this stuff and what I offer. Um, and again, at the core, effectiveness is so important to me. Um, and so that's part of my process of getting to know potential clients, hearing where they're at, hearing where they've been, hearing the stuff that's really bubbling up, and then coming up with a game plan together that really fits who they are and what's going on there. Um, so that's the most common way that, you know, people will contact me or email me 
info at racialequityinsights.com. Either way, you can contact me. Um, and then I check that inbox and I'll write you back and then we meet up over Zoom and start talking. Um, and if you like everything, I'll send you a proposal and you know we kind of go from there if you want to go forward with the services. Um, and I do have different scales for, for like nonprofits. I tend to charge at a lower, a lower scale. Um, and then all the way up to you know major corporations and whatnot, they're gonna get the, the full price scale. So uh, again, I do uh, workshops and trainings. I do uh, executive coaching. I do strategy developments. I do keynote speaking. And I have a very small but growing on-demand e-course library that people can check out on my store on my page as well. Mm -hmm. Oh, and find me on all the social medias too. Uh, yes. TikTok and uh, Instagram primarily at Racial Equity Insights. Uh, and occasionally I'll put something on LinkedIn as well. Awesome. So I think we're out of time, guys. Oh, that conversation went so fast. But make sure if you're listening to this in podcast form, subscribe. If you are watching us right now on LinkedIn, please go to the podcast and we'll put all the links in the comments after this. I'll put Tony's email as well as the link to the podcast so you can go subscribe and rate us. And yeah, that's it. Any closing thoughts from anyone before we right at the top of the hour? I just want to say thank you for sharing. As Jesleen said, we are not in a position currently to be able to pay Tony for his time. Uh, that is something that is on our priority list, is written down. It is on our roadmap as a thing because it is vital. It is important. But we appreciate you gifting us with your time and our community with all of your knowledge. Uh, so make sure that you follow him. We will post all of those links like Jasmine just said and we look forward to seeing you next week we have another great conversation and it's going to be with Kathleen Johnson so make sure that you sign up for that event and we will see you next week I appreciate it Tony do you have any closing thoughts you good okay. um I don't think so just thank you so much for having me this has been really fun um and again let's 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 do that work and let's really examine ourselves in the mirror and figure out how we can have those outcomes that dismantle systems uh, that bring in advanced equity to marginalized people. Beautiful. Thank you so much. Bye, y'all. Bye. Thank you. Bye, everybody. That concludes today's episode. If you want to help us disrupt the tech industry to increase the representation of diverse talent, please register and subscribe at our website, jobdisruptors.com. Also, please subscribe and leave a review for the podcast and share with DEI champions and diverse talent alike. Here's to disrupting.